0: Well, good evening. It's good to have you joining us tonight for our Bible study hour. And we are going to be going back to the Gospel of Luke, as we have been for a while now. Tonight, we're going to be starting into chapter 18. Last week, we finished up Luke chapter 17, and we'll mention the context of that in just a minute, because it ties in with where we're going to go in Luke chapter 18. So, I hope uh, you have just a minute there to get your Bible and... And uh, join us there in the text. I'm going to start by reading the text, if you will. Join me. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector.'" I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we finished up Luke chapter 17 last week together, we were looking at that last section in verses 22 and following, where the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to the disciples about the second coming of Christ, about the Lord's return to Israel to be their king, their functioning Messiah. But first, of course, he had to go to the cross. And in that passage about the second coming, he reminds them that the second coming is going to be characterized by judgment, by sudden judgment, by complete judgment, by severe judgment. Nevertheless, there is mercy for all who will come and receive salvation. The Lord seems to be continuing that same context because in verse 1 of Luke chapter 18, it says, Now he was telling them a parable. And the word them in verse 1 of chapter 18 seems to refer back to the disciples in chapter 17 and verse 22. So this is a, a discussion, a continuation of the discussion that he is having with them about the kingdom, about preparation for judgment, about whats is, what what is expected of the believer and of the disciples during the days that lie ahead. So he gives us two parables in the section that's before us tonight, the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 18. In these parables, and in fact in Luke chapter 18, Luke introduces us to a number of very interesting characters. In the first parable, he's going to introduce us to widows and politicians. In the second parable, he's going to introduce us to a Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector. Later in the chapter, he's going to introduce us to little children and adults and to rich men and to beggars, a collection of people here that he wants us to look at and think about, a group of characters that he wants us to learn from. A parable is a story with an intended lesson. Now, earlier in his ministry, the Lord had taught many other lessons about prayer, and so we see the Lord continuing to teach about prayer. As we continue to learn and grow, we ought always to be willing to learn more. I want you to look with me now at this first parable the parable of the persistent widow. Some have called her the demanding widow. Uh, demanding in the sense of being very persistent in making her requests, her demands. And the first parable, according to verse 1, the very purpose of it is declared. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they, the disciples, ought to pray and not to lose heart. The purpose of this parable is to convey to the disciple the necessity of persistent prayer and thus also the accompanying persistence of faith, not to lose heart. We we have a very interesting selection of of the subject by the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about a widow, and in Luke's gospel, he mentions widows, uh, according to some uh, summaries, he, he mentions widows more than all of the other gospel writers combined. I didn't look how many other references there were, but there are six different references to widows in the gospel of Luke. He refers to the widow by the name of Anna, a prophetess who spoke at the time of the dedication of Christ as a baby at the temple, the uh, when he was uh, brought there by his parents. In Luke chapter 4, we have the widow of Zarephath referred to in Elijah's day. In Luke chapter 7, we have the widow at Nain, whose dead son, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. Here in chapter 18, we have a widow used as an example of persistence. In chapter 20, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates concern for widows who are victims of the Jewish scribes. And in chapter 21, he draws attention to a poor widow as the greatest example of giving present in the temple at that time. This poor widow put in all of the money that she had. She gave 100% of what she had. It was only two little coins, But it was a great amount. Now, in that day, in the days of the New Testament, we need to understand a little bit more about the situation of widows. They usually had a very difficult time making ends meet. Even though in the Old Testament God had instructed Israel to take care of widows, Uh, we won't go through a lot of passages, but let me mention a couple passages tonight. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 24, just after giving the Ten Commandments, the Lord expanded with some other statutes and ordinances. And he said this to Israel You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, someone who's traveled into your country from another place. And the reason for that is that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Verse 22 of Exodus 22 then goes on to say, You shall not afflict any widow... Or orphan, if you shall afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children will become fatherless. Deuteronomy 14 also gives instruction that at the end of the third year, every third year, they would bring out of all of the tithe of their produce in that year and deposit one-tenth of their crop in the town. And that deposit of food by all of the farming people in the town would be the provision for all of the Levites because they had no land inheritance among the people. It will be a provision for the alien, that's the stranger, the The person from a foreign country who has moved in. It will be provision for the orphan and for the widow who are in your town. They shall come and eat and be satisfied. It will be enough for all of them. This is Deuteronomy 14 verse 29. In order that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hand which you do. And there's many other references in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the other prophets... God's requirement upon Israel is that they would have compassion for those in their midst who were in need. And this is often the subject of Christ's teaching and his accusations to the leaders for their uh, lack of justice, their lack of compassion, and so on, uh, to the widows. So all of that in this context helps us to comprehend uh, why the Lord would use a widow as the subject of his lesson for us. It's also important for us to understand who this is that is referred to in this character, in this parable, as a judge in verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, and he did not respect man. In the Middle East of the first century, uh, the courtroom was not a building downtown, there was no federal court building or a city court building, but it was often a temporary quarters like a tent that the judge would take from village to village, town to town, as the judge would go on a circuit, he would set up this temporary uh, tent office courtroom uh, in the town. And it was the judge who set the agenda. He would sit in his tent in his authority. He would be surrounded by his assistants. People would come to hear their cases tried. But it was only people who got through the assistants who could come to the judge. And quite often, there was an an expectation that the assistants would be bribed, that you would bring a gift, that there would be money under the table to an assistant and then maybe even money under the table to the judge. And then once that assistant was paid off, he would make sure that your case got on the docket, that the judge would hear what you had to say. Now, the widow has several problems if she wants to see the judge. First of all, she's a woman, and so she had no standing before the law. We don't, we're we not even told what the case is, that is, she is seeking protection uh, from here in this passage, but there is something going on in the law, and she is as being subjected to someone else's uh, legal processes, and she has little standing before the law. Women did not go to court in those days. Secondly, A woman who was married would have her husband to go to court on her behalf. A young woman who was still in her father's home would have a father to go to court for her. But this widow has no husband to stand up for her in the court. The third problem she has is that she is poor, she has no money with which to bribe an assistant. Or perhaps, in her character, she refuses to bribe an assistant. And so she ends up having to come time after time after time. She has to come and petition over and over and over and over again just to get a hearing before the judge. And it is obviously in in the parable, this persistence is the key element that's being pointed out. She is so insistent on getting a hearing that she comes day after day after day after day. She's ignored by the assistants over and over and over again. As we keep that in mind going down through this, it helps us to comprehend the the point and the lesson that the Lord wants for us. Remember that the basic teaching is that the Lord wants his disciples to pray. He wants us to pray. He wants us to pray persistently. I think that he's talking about praying persistently in life and persistently throughout life. And so in order to get that across, in this parable, uh, there are some similarities between the woman and us. But there are also several contrasts in this passage. Uh, And sometimes the point of a parable is to teach a similarity. Sometimes it is through the use of a contrast. And in this case, there may be a mixture here of both. I'm not going to spend as much time on the similarities. Let me just mention these two. There are similarities between this woman and the New Testament disciple, the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as the woman had an opportunity to seek help, so do we. She came to the judge. While she didn't have much legal standing before the judge, at least there was a judge for her to go to. She did have some opportunity. We likewise have opportunity. The contrast is going to be that it's a far greater opportunity. The second similarity is just as there was a source of help for her, as inaccessible as it was in some ways, so also there is for us a source of help of help the contrast is that our source of help is far greater than the source of help that this widow had so let's think about some of the contrasts that are in this chapter i'm mean, in this uh, paragraph in this parable the first contrast is that the lord is making a contrast between praying and fainting that's in verse 1 if we do not pray we will end up fainting if we are not persistent in prayer we may quit. If we are not steadfast in prayer, we will be sporadic in prayer, and we may even totally stop. You'll notice in verse 1 that it says, at all times they ought to pray. At all times is persistence. They ought to pray is necessity. So we have the necessity of prayer, and the constancy of prayer. The necessity of prayer impresses upon us the fact that it is a requirement for life. It is a must for us, the necessity of prayer. And the second is that the Lord wants us to be participating in this at all times. Prayer is to be the natural habit of our life. It is to be the spiritual tone with which we walk. It is the atmosphere in which we constantly live. To faint, by contrast, to faint is to lose heart. It is to get discouraged. It is to want to quit. So what is it then in this parable that helps us to learn how to pray persistently and not to quit. Let's look at the next contrast and we're moving in that direction. The widow is contrasted with God's elect between verses 3 and verse 7. In verse 3 there is a widow in that city. In verse 7 now will not God bring about justice for his elect. The contrast is between the woman and the elect the similarity is in the opportunity that the widow had but here are some of the contrast between this woman and the believer in Christ today now let me mention as we look at these that the lord jesus christ is using a certain type of argument here he is arguing from the lesser to the greater we have seen him do this before and he's saying if this poor widow got what she needed from a judge who was selfish, how much more will God's children receive what is right from a loving heavenly father? If this woman, as an example, goes to this judge who is is, is a bad example for a judge... But even then she gets what she needs. How much more it is that we who have already a relationship through Christ with God in heaven, his children, how much more it is true that we will receive what our Father has for us. So consider these things. First of all, this woman was a stranger to the judge. She was a stranger to the judge. She wasn't related to him She wasn't a neighbor. Uh, There's no connection. She has no inside connection with this judge. By contrast, you and I are referred to in verse 7 as the elect, God's elect. That obviously in Scripture refers to those whom God has chosen to salvation, whom God draws to salvation, it referred in the Old Testament to the elect nation of Christ. It's going to refer in the New Testament to the elect believers, the elect uh, individuals who come. God brings to Christ in the body of Christ. And so these are the saved people of the New Testament. If, in the New Testament era, these are referred to as the children of God, the saved, the saints, the believers, all of these References. So the woman was a total stranger to the judge. But you and I, the disciples, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, have come to God through Jesus Christ. And we read earlier in Luke 11 and verse 13 that God cares for his children. The second thing is that... Not only was this woman a stranger to the judge, she had no access to the judge. She had no normal avenue of access to this judge. She was a woman. She had no one who could get her in to hear the judge. But by contrast, my friend, you and I in Christ not only have access, but we are invited into the access of God's presence. We are urged to come into the very throne room, to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat of God, to the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 and 3 and Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 all refer to these things. You and I as believers are invited into the very presence of God as we pray. We come to God through Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father. The third thing about this woman is that she had no friend at court to help her get her case on the docket. She had no one who could represent her. She had no lawyer. She had no helper. But my friend, you and I... When we come to the Lord in prayer, we have a Savior who is also called our advocate. He is our called our high priest and he is called our intercessor. We have Jesus Christ, our advocate. Jesus Christ, the high priest representing us before God. We have Jesus Christ, the intercessor praying for us before God. The woman had no one, but we have The Son of God Himself. The widow had no promises that she could claim as she tried to convince the judge to hear her case. The woman had no promises. She had nothing to base her hope on that she might get a hearing. But my friend, we have all of God's word promising us all that God has given us in Christ Jesus. We have all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And all of those things listed by Paul and others in the New Testament. She had nothing. We have everything. The woman came to a court of law, but God's children come to the throne Of grace. This woman came to a court of law hoping that she would get a hearing. She came before an unjust judge hoping she might get mercy. But God's children come to a throne characterized by grace, characterized by mercy, characterized by compassion. She was pleading in her need and poverty You and I come in the riches of Christ to the full application of God's grace. God has promised that he will, to the local church in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, that he will meet all of our needs. So, as one writer said, the point is clear. If we fail to pray, our condition spiritually will be just like that of the poor widow. And that should encourage us to pray. We are here in order to pray. God wants us to pray. He wants us to persist in prayer. This woman's persistence is held up as an example to us. And if she was persistent without all of the access and the hope and the help, how much more we who have all of that should persist in prayer. So the woman is contrasted with the believer. The second contrast, or excuse me, the third contrast, the judge is contrasted with the father, especially in these last uh, three verses. Now, some uh, look at this, and um, they get the idea that that God is being compared with the judge. This woman has to come, she has to beg, she has to plead, she has to be persistent, she has to make a nuisance of herself before the judge, and that's the same comparison with God, that we have to be persistent and make a nuisance of ourselves in order to get God to hear. And I believe that's exactly the opposite of what Christ is actually saying. Christ is not saying here that he's comparing the Father and the judge as being the same, he's contrasting them. As as being completely different. The judge is described in verse 2 as having no fear of God and no respect for men. He would have, with, without, with that kind of a concept of, of law and order, he would have no compassion and no mercy. He has no measure for it because he has rejected the fear of God. By contrast, the Lord is described in verse 7 as being the God who brings about justice, both in verses 7 and verse 8. So there's a contrast. God is not like this judge. God is our loving God. He's our loving Father. He understands the needs of his people. He hears the cry of his saints. He is generous in his mercy. He is compassionate in pouring out to us that which we need and that for which we ask. God answers prayer. For our good, God answers prayer for his glory. God does not get irritated when we come to him and ask for wisdom. In fact, it tells us that God gives to us abundantly and delightfully. Now, there's one more statement here in this contrast, uh, and it brings up a question. In verse 7, Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Does God answer every prayer? Quickly? And I think we all have to acknowledge that the answer to that is no. One of the examples is in the book of Exodus. It's very clear from the very beginning of the book of Exodus that the people of Israel were praying to God for deliverance from the burden of the slavery under which they had suffered under the hands of Pharaoh. We don't know how long they prayed, but we do know that it was 80 years at least before god sent them a man to lead them out of egypt and even then it didn't happen overnight and so while god is in the process of answering our prayers we have to remember romans 8:28 that god is working all things together after the counsel of uh, uh, of his own will that's ephesians 1 romans 8:28 all things work together for good to them who are called God is working things out to accomplish His purposes in His due time. So you and I have the reassurance that God will be just in His answer, and that He also will be merciful, even if He has, in long suffering, has us wait. And we can be very thankful for God's long suffering, because there are many times. I suspect there's far more times when we. We need God's long-suffering to spare us uh, than times when we are waiting for God. We, as God's people, have every reason to come to Christ. If this woman could go to a judge and plead with him until her nuisance persistence made him bend, how much more we should come willingly and quickly to a loving Father who wants to pour out for us in his grace and mercy to us. I want you to see one more thing in verse 5, and that is the attitude of this judge. He says, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. The phrase there, at the end of the verse actually uses a word that can refer to uh, a black eye. That she will wear me out. She will uh, literally, she can ruin my reputation. She can give me a black eye. I I don't think the judge is afraid of physical assault and battery, but of the fact that he's publicly going to get a black eye if he doesn't take care of this woman's demands because she's showing up every day, every day, every day, every day, everybody's hearing about it. And if he doesn't take care of it, he's going to have a black eye. So this man answers her out of his unwillingness. And that is contrasted to God's great willingness to do for us abundantly above all that we ask or think. What a glorious promise and truth there is. But there's one more question, and that's at the end of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, at first glance, this might seem to say, to be appearing to say, wow, is, is there going to be even anyone still believing when the Son of Man comes? When we read the end of chapter 17, we're reminded that judgment is going to be a very real part of the coming of the Son of Man. But what he's teaching his disciples in this paragraph is that as they wait for the Lord to come, they ought at all times to pray, and in the praying persistent praying, they will be encouraged and they will end up not fainting. They will pray and not faint. They will pray and not lose heart. If the disciples will continue in prayer, then yes, the Lord will find faith when he comes. He will find faith on the earth as people continually persist in prayer. It it implies that this faith The faith of the believer is strengthened by waiting on God and by being persistent in prayer, even if we don't receive an immediate answer. We have an example in the book of Job in chapter 23, and verses 8 through 12, where Job said, Behold, I I go forward, but he is not there. And I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. It seems like God isn't there. But verse 10, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast. To his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job persisted in trusting the Lord even when he could not see him, he could not perceive him, his eyes could not behold him, he could not see the Lord, and yet he persisted in holding fast. So when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As he did when he came and judged the earth in the days of Noah. Yes, he found Noah and his family, a man of faith. Not many, but he found Noah. And there was salvation through the ark. The question at the end of verse 8 is an exhortation to us to be persistent in prayer. If the Lord comes back today, will he find you praying? If the Lord comes back today, will he find you faithful? It's more likely that you'll be faithful if you're praying. Praying is a an indication of that faith and a continuation and a feeding of that faith. And so that's the first parable in this chapter. And now... Let's take a look at the second parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And this is probably one of the more familiar stories of the New Testament, one of the more familiar parables. Uh, Many, many uh, people learn it in Sunday school as a child. In verse 9, he told this parable. Again, a parable, but notice a different audience. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they viewed others with contempt. So these people that he's directing this parable to are characterized by two things. And the first thing has two parts. The first thing, they trusted in themselves. Why did they trust in themselves? Because they believed they were righteous. And the second thing is they viewed others with contempt. Now, there's only three things wrong with those three things, and that is that all three things are wrong. They trusted in themselves, and that was wrong. They thought they were righteous, and that was wrong. And they viewed others with contempt, and that was wrong. So the purpose of this parable is to show that one cannot trust in himself Because none of us are righteous, and none of us should view others with contempt. And so he uses two people here as an example. The first person is a Pharisee. The Pharisee was a religious leader in the first century. He was a Jewish leader. He was a man who had a higher level of education. He had been taught a lot more of the Old Testament laws. He memorized a lot of them and the pharisees also had uh a lot of rules that they added to the scriptures they uh, they uh w- would wear religious garb and they would go to the temple and they would uh devote themselves to praying and and they were looked up to by the jewish society they were they were uh, they were kind of the more religious people in the society they were the ones who were always trying to be careful to do everything exactly right, to mind their P's and Q's, as it were, in the Jewish rituals and the Jewish law. But this Pharisee comes into the temple, and you'll notice that both of the men come to the temple to pray. When the Pharisee comes to the temple to pray, in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus, or this, to himself. God... I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, in in this parable, and by the way, as I recall, uh, both of these parables occur only in Luke. This parable, This man is praying to himself in verse 11. It doesn't say that he's praying out loud. Um, So so he's in the temple and probably standing there in a posture of prayer. Maybe his hands are folded. Maybe his hands are lifted up to heaven. But he's praying to himself. He's praying quietly. But Jesus knows what he's thinking. God knows what he's thinking. And this man, in his prayer is most concerned about informing God about what a good man he was. He wanted to inform God about how righteous he was. And so he was boldly, publicly standing there in the temple as one who had his whole act together and publicly standing in prayer, even while he's praying privately he believed that he was exemplary. He's thinking things like, oh, oh, if all of you people could just be like me. If you could just be like me and, and follow my example, do what I do, do it the way I do it. God would be very, very happy with you, just like God is very, very happy with me. Here is a man who had all this religious training. He knew all the rules, and outwardly he kept those rules. That's not saying that he kept them in his mind or heart, but he was keeping them outwardly. He would, and he, so he goes through his list of what he, of, of all the good things that he does, and he's trying to convince God about how good he is. I, I I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not even like this tax collector. So he goes through his list. He's telling him, and he continues in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. These were typical things that were expected of the Jewish people. people in their ritualism, it it was more about keeping the rules than it was of really worshiping God. The the Jewish Old Testament faith had deteriorated into just another religion of men. Uh, God never gave us religion. God gave us faith. God gave us the Word of God so we could trust God and walk with God in obedience men try to impress God with how good they can be and how righteous they can be and how religious they can be by keeping all the rules and ceremonies. And so we try to impress God with why he should accept us. But the believer says to God, I'm not acceptable, but you and your mercy and grace have made a way to accept me into your presence through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, through the gift of the animal sacrifices. this man is boldly proclaiming to God what a good man he was. We also see that this man is using other people as his standard of measuring righteousness because he considered himself to be better than other people. I thank you that I am not like these other people. And he just picks out some that he that maybe these are people he sees in the temple. Maybe these are just things that he has typically compared himself to. He does see the tax collector standing over there nearby. And in his mind, he measures himself compared with the tax collector. I'm better than the tax collector. Instead of swindling people out of their money by charging them their the taxes for Rome plus Some off the top for me, swindling people, being dishonest, being deceitful. Why, instead of being like that, I I even give a tenth. I give a tithe. I'm not like the tax collector. He's measuring himself by other people. Now, friend, if you measure yourself by other people, you can always find somebody who's worse than you are. You can always find somebody who's spiritually worse than you are. It is, no, uh, it, it is no good to measure ourselves against other people. That is not the standard by which God measures. And because he's measuring himself by other people as his standard, he's filled with pride. He's filled with self-righteousness. He comes to tell God how good he is. Oh, God, you should be really impressed with me. You should be glad to have me. Look at me. Here I am. What a gift for God. God. we, We meet people like that. They believe they're a gift to mankind. Not a good attitude to have. He considered himself better... Than others, This man is filled with pride. He's filled with arrogance. He's filled with self-righteousness. And this describes the religious person of the world. This describes the religious person of our world today. It describes a lot of people who sit in churches on Sunday. It describes a lot of people who sit in a religious setting at whatever time of the week, and, and they're doing the things they're supposed to do, and, and they think they're doing okay because they're not as bad as somebody else, but, but they have forgotten that the measuring stick is not man's righteousness. The measuring stick is God's righteousness. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to the glory of God. We have all sinned and come short. Of the glory of God. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There is not one good, no, not one. There's not one good man on the earth. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. This man is refusing to admit his sinfulness. He's refusing to humble himself before God and admit that he cannot help himself. He needs God to help him. So on the other hand, we have the tax collector. So this second parable is also a parable of contrast. You'll notice the word of uh, verse 13 that begins verse 13, but the tax collector, a contrast. The, t- the tax collector standing some distance away, the implication may be that, that he's shrunk back at the back of the crowd, he's not out front, he's, he's not drawing attention to himself, he perhaps is demonstrating... That he doesn't deserve to be close to the t- temple, that he doesn't deserve to be as close as others. There per- perhaps is some implication there with the reason he's standing some distance away. But even there, when he's standing there, he is unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He is unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, he will not even look up toward God because of the shame that he has for his sin. Here is a man who realizes he is unworthy to come into the presence of the God of Israel. He is a man who is weighed down with the guilt of his sin, with the shame of his sin. Now the tax collectors, I think most of you know it, but if you don't, a tax collector in that day in Israel was typically a Jewish person who was collecting taxes from the Jewish people to pay to Rome. And so the Jewish people looked at these tax collectors as traitors, as, as turncoats. You, 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 you would, would work for Rome? You would help Rome, our oppressors? And so there was, th- these, these people were despised. <coughs> they were also despised not only because they worked for Rome, but because they ripped people off. That was, that was known, it was typical. That they would rip people off. They would charge you too much for the tax so they could keep some and still pay the tax that was owed to Rome. So, this tax collector knew that he was not a good man. He knew that he was not a good man who was standing there praying to God. He recognized his own sinfulness and his own inacceptability to God. He will not even lift his eyes to heaven. In verse 13, it says he was beating his breast. He's pounding on his chest in his anguish, in his distress over his sin. And he's crying out to God, be merciful to me, to the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Here is a man who is not measuring himself by the other people standing around. He is measuring himself by the character of God. He's measuring himself by the word of God. He is saying, I am not worthy. I have nothing that I have done that is good. I am a sinner. And I need God's mercy. He knew not only the standard of measure to which he could not reach. He also knew the standard of God's mercy. This man realized that he had to throw himself upon the mercy of God in order to receive forgiveness for his sins. The Lord Jesus Christ has often taught on humility in his teachings. And here is a man who humbles himself before God. And he continues to tell us that in his summary statement uh, in verse 14. The Lord Jesus gives us a summary judgment about the parable, about the two men in this parable. We have the man who is on the outside exemplary, but on the inside filled with pride and arrogance. On the other hand, we have a man who on the outside is despicable. On the outside, he is a swindler. On the outside, he's a crook. And on the outside, he is ashamed of his sin, and he should be. Which of these two men... Will become justified. Which one of these two men will be declared just in the presence of a holy God? And Jesus answers that question much to the shock of the Jewish people that it was not the Pharisee who would go home that day justified, rather, it would be the tax collector who would go home justified because it is necessary for people to humble themselves before God in order to gain forgiveness. And those who are proud in the Old Testament will be brought low. In the New Testament, those who are proud will be put down. They will be brought down by God. God will resist the proud in the book of James. So Jesus gives summary judgment. God is not looking for good people. God is not trying to fill the church with good people. Because there aren't any. There aren't any here at Grace Church Amener. We are sinners. We are sinners in need of the Savior. There are no righteous men in their own works here. There are no righteous people. There are no religious people whose religious works are acceptable to God. There's not one here at Grace Church Amener. Not one. There's not one person whose religious works are doing them any good here in this body. There are none of us whose moral qualities have endeared us to God because we're sinners. We are sinners. That's who we are. And we we cannot compare ourselves with others oh i'm I'm better than so and so and i'm I'm better than so and so and I'm not as bad as so and so and I'm not as bad as them. oh, I may not be as good as him, but I'm better than than him. It's not a matter of comparison to others, it's a matter of comparison to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. so God is not looking for good people. The Lord Jesus Christ put it in other words in another place. When he said, I, I, I'm, like, I'm like the doctor. I didn't come to help the people who think they aren't sick. I came to help the sick. I came to help the sinner. I came to minister to those who will admit that they are sinners. To those who will admit that they need help. God has not called the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the reason for that is there aren't any righteous And so we are exhorted throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament to humble ourselves in order to come to God. To come to God and declare our total lack of righteousness, our total loss of anything that would provide good standing with God. We come to God to declare our need, not that we deserve anything. We come in our poverty to receive the riches of God In Jesus Christ, we come in our unrighteous condition to receive God's gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. My friend, you and I, in our natural tendency, are the Pharisee of this parable. We like to compare ourselves with others because that's a whole lot easier than comparing ourselves with the pure standard of God's righteousness. We like to think that we're okay and we're pretty good. And we like to sit around and be impressed with ourselves. But if we really want to find forgiveness for our sins, if we really want to come to Jesus Christ and receive eternal life, we have to humble ourselves and admit, I'm a sinner. There is no good that I can do. If I could be perfectly religious for a million years it would not pay for one of the sins that I have committed because I'm a sinner I deserve to die but there is one who did not deserve to die and his name was Jesus Christ but he volunteered to die God sent him to die he was willing to die for you and I that he might take your sins and my sins upon himself on that cross We come to God not to declare our righteousness, but we come to God to declare our need for Jesus Christ. That is the point of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You and I are the tax collectors. We are the sinners. We are the ones who need to humble ourselves before Almighty God and cry out to God for his saving grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay my death penalty. Jesus died on the cross to take my penalty so that I might live eternally in Jesus Christ. My friend, don't let this gospel of Luke pass you by without falling upon your face before God and praying the prayer that the tax collector prayed in this passage. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me because of what you did for me in Jesus Christ. Be merciful to me because I cannot earn eternal life. Be merciful to me because I have no righteousness of my own. God, I accept your free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And my friend, if you've already made that decision... If you have already come to that place where you are like this tax collector, how grateful we can be, how thankful we are for what God has done for us in Christ. So let's go back to the example of the first parable and uh, uh, apply to ourselves the exhortation to be persistent in prayer to take advantage of the opportunity of having a Heavenly Father who invites us to come again and again and again into His presence with the requests that we have to make them known. And so He delights in both of these parables. God delights to show mercy to the sinner and to answer the prayer of those who come in faith in Christ. And so let's apply these parables to ourselves. Coming for salvation coming in persistent prayer to the throne of grace where God's grace is poured out upon all who come and humble themselves before him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray this day that you will apply the word of God to each of our hearts. There is not one of us that can earn salvation. There is not one of us that earns a place in Christ. There is not one of us that earns eternal life. There's not one of us that does enough good because we are sinners. Lord, we thank you for the message of these parables. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted Christ, that this would be the moment that they would at this moment come to you for salvation, calling out, crying out to you for your saving grace. And Father, for every believer, I pray that you would work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure, to make us more persistent in prayer, more faithful in prayer, more consistent in prayer. As a necessity of life, just as Job said he would regard your word more than his necessary food, Lord, enable us to see the necessity of persistence in prayer. Strengthen us, I pray, by your grace, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And uh, next week we'll continue, Lord willing, in Luke chapter 18. We'll see you then.